you, Luke and praise team. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 17 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 8, 14 to 17. I heard a story from a friend of mine about a funeral that he had done. It was a tragic uh, funeral. A young man, no more than 16 or 17, had passed away and left behind uh, just a single mother. And there in the casket, in front of them in the church, was the body of a child who passed entirely too soon. And this pastor, as the normal course of events happens in the funeral, he's spending time with the mother and with the rest of the family. He's going to the visitation and counseling them through this. And the day of the funeral comes and he's talking with the mother before the funeral, who is obviously grief-stricken. She's in tears. She just can't hold it together. And she asks the pastor there in the church, to pray that the Lord would raise her son from the dead. To turn around to the casket and to command her son to get up. These are kinds of things that they don't prepare you for in seminary. I can tell you. You don't want to have to have the conversation that you're about to have, nor nor in the time and the place that you have to have it, telling this mother that you're not going to do that, having to tell her why, and having to deal with the feelings of guilt as a pastor, of not being able to console her in the way that she wants to be consoled. And even the feelings of doubt in your own mind, being able to turn around and command a body to get up from the grave. It's not something that you think can happen. Now, We may not have had something that extreme happen to us, but I think all of us know the feeling or something like the feeling that this mother is going through. And if we can't relate to that, then for sure we will one day. To know what it's like to lose something that you love. But more than that, just to look around at the world around us and to know that it's broken. That it doesn't function like it's supposed to function. That this is not the way that it's supposed to be. There's something wrong about the the world that we live in. And that the loss of life, particularly the loss of life of this young kid, is, is tragic and underscores the brokenness that we're in right now. Over time, as we live long enough, it becomes painfully evident that we're living under the curse of the fall. And the longer we go, the less it seems that we can do about it. Like the pastor in that funeral. Yes, we experience the tragic loss, but what what can I do about it? This morning, we're going to see another healing episode. A time where Jesus comes to yet another person, another another people actually, 
and begins to heal them. First, we're going to see Jesus going in and healing Peter's mother-in-law, and then we're going to see Jesus healing the townspeople around, Jesus going around healing. This is the third healing episode in a row that we're going to see. But in this scene, Matthew is going to actually clue us in to the reason behind Jesus' healing ministry. Why is he going around healing the way he is? Why is he going around doing the things that he's doing in this healing ministry? Why is he doing that? Matthew's going to clue us in on exactly why. And I think it helps to reconcile the pain that we feel living under the curse of the fall. And it gives us hope for a future. So with that in mind, let's look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. And when Jesus entered Peter's house... He saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. She rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So if you all remember, two weeks ago, we had uh, a scene where Jesus heals a leper. And it's an unclean leper. That's what lepers were. They were unclean. This leper comes into the middle of the crowd. He comes into the middle of everybody. And the crowd is astonished and appalled as they step back. And Jesus uh, there touches the leper on his head and heals him. And we see the faith of this leper leaving, we presume, the leper colony that he is in, uh, going into the middle of the crowd unannounced. He doesn't care about anything else. He knows that Jesus can heal him. He kneels before the, the, before the Messiah. Jesus reaches out his hand, touches him, and heals him. And then we saw last week, we saw the faith of the centurion who comes there on behalf of his servant who is lying in his house, paralyzed, and Jesus agrees to heal the servant of the centurion in accordance with the faith that the centurion demonstrates. And we said, here's an example of someone who is poor in spirit, someone who is coming before Jesus, recognizing that he has the authority to command the kingdom of God and, and, and acknowledges that he can heal his servant even from a distance. Lord, you just say the word, and I know that it can be done. And Jesus actually calls out the centurion's faith And we said, here's an example of the faith of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven right here. This morning we're looking at the third healing story in a row. And this one is is similar to the other two in that the person is healed. Although there there are some notable differences as well. And unlike the previous two healing stories here, Matthew makes an editorial comment right at the end of this scene that gives us a clue, a very important clue, as to why he's actually even told us about these healing stories. The whole Gospel of Matthew that, he's, that Matthew is writing is leading us somewhere. It's taking us to a destination, and it's going to make a point about what Jesus' ministry actually means for us. And you all already know what that point is. You know the last passage in Matthew. You know the final point of the Gospel. The whole Gospel of Matthew is boiling to that point. Go, therefore, and proclaim. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples. So the whole gospel along the way, all of these miracles, all of the stories that he's telling us are all bubbling up to build to that exact point to help us understand why Jesus is doing this kind of ministry and what it means for us. What is significant about Jesus healing these people then? I want you to observe three things in our text today. The first thing is this. The healing Jesus brings restores completely. The healing that Jesus brings restores completely. Look at verses 14 and 15. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. Now, Jesus, we take it, is still in Capernaum. And the reason we think that is because Mark's gospel points that direction and says basically that they were in the synagogue, that they left the synagogue on the Sabbath, and that they, he, he went straight to Peter's uh, mother-in-law's house there in Capernaum. Now, John tells us in the Gospel of John that Peter, Andrew, and Philip are, are all from Bethsaida which is just to the east. So if we're looking at Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, uh, Bethsaida would be just to the east of that, still on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. But probably what happened, it's reasonable to conclude anyway, that after Jesus began his ministry and established his base in Capernaum, that, that Peter, uh, Andrew, and probably Philip as well, moved to Capernaum to set up camp there with Jesus kind of moved their family over. Wouldn't have been that far of a move. So, but it's here in this city in Capernaum that we see this brief little scene with Peter's mother-in-law as Jesus goes into his house, and there she's lying sick with a fever. But there are some significant differences between this scene in Peter's house and the two healing miracles that we've seen so far. See, by, by all accounts, Peter's mother-in-law is out cold. Laying there with a fever. You had a fever. You probably understand. This is probably a very serious uh, kind of fever that probably hasn't broke in several days. And she's laying there, and it doesn't seem that she makes a, a peep in this scene. In fact, we actually see in the other Gospels that there are people coming to Jesus inside the house and begging him to go heal her. So it's not that she's advocating for herself. It seems like other people are advocating for her, that she is completely out, which would lead us to believe that she is unable to ask Jesus herself for this healing. And the reason that I think that's an important detail is because it's a good bit different than the previous two healings that we've seen so far. In, in both of them, the, it seems that the people that Jesus heals demonstrate great faith. The leper leaves his leper colony and taking great risk on his own life and the risk of the people around him goes up to Jesus and in faith asks him to be healed. And then we see the centurion obviously demonstrates great faith as he comes up to Jesus and asks for Jesus to heal his servant even from a distance. And even Jesus points to the centurion's faith. And he says to him, go and let it be done for you as you have believed. So it sort of leaves the reader with the assumption that the fever for the, or the paralysis for the centurion's servant goes away in accordance with what he has believed. But is, it raises the question then, is Jesus healing bound by the faith of the one that's healed? 
Is his healing contingent on the one that's being healed? We'll see in a a few chapters in chapter 13 where Jesus will go into the town of Nazareth Nazareth, and it says that he, he didn't do many miracles in that town because of the lack of faith of the people that were there. So it raises the question, is Jesus healing contingent on the faith of the one healed? And it seems that when we get to Peter's mother-in-law, the answer is no. Now there's a reason I want to draw your attention to this. Especially because of the moment that we're in. With the so-called prosperity gospel preachers and faith healers like Benny Hinn. Who go around jet-setting around the world waving their jacket over people's faces, pushing their foreheads and other such nonsense to make them fall to the floor, claiming that they're healed. The Lord comes over them with the gift of healing. And He's passing that on to the people that are there. All the people who have real physical ailments, who see Benny Hinn or name the prosperity gospel theologian that's going out there, if you can call him that, that's going out there peddling this false gospel. They're coming there and they see him as their only hope. And so they, they, they beg him for healing. And then he runs this sham. And in the event that one is not healed, what's the explanation? They didn't have faith. Matthew is telling us more than just a mere episode of healing. What is he doing? He's demonstrating for us the power of Jesus to command the kingdom of God. He's demonstrating just how much power Jesus has to command the kingdom of God. And in these healing episodes, we see the sheer force of the kingdom of God as it encounters the world, the sinful, fallen world around it with its sickness and its illness and its broken people. And it apparently moves through our world unencumbered by the limitations of humanity. Now this may be the best news of all. Because if healing was contingent on my faith, then I'm afraid far too often it would be lacking. That's not what we find when, when Jesus brings the kingdom. We find power and authority. Not only is it powerful enough to wake up the dead, or in this case, the incapacitated, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them note the immediacy with which she returns to normal activity. In this case, she gets up and she begins serving them and all the guests that are, that are there, but it specifically mentions Jesus. She begins serving Jesus. Now, there's a point that's being made here about the power of the healing that Jesus brings to the people that he encounters. We've all been sick before. We've all been lying in a bed. We've all had fever at one point or another. You don't just come back to the land of the living when you've had a fever. When you've been laying down with the flu, you don't just come back to the land of the living and begin eating. The first time you take a meal, you do it really slowly. You do something very light because the last time you ate, it didn't end so well. So you do it slowly. You do it carefully. You are you take meticulous steps. Not so with Peter's mother-in-law. Take, taking note of, of this particular fact, 
is important for where Matthew is going to lead us, even in this passage where he's going to lead us. We're taking note of the fact that she's healed immediately. She's healed to the uttermost, that she's restored completely. The healing of the kingdom that Jesus brings restores completely. Remember that. Restores completely. The second thing that I want you to note, the healing that Jesus brings is all-encompassing. The healing that Jesus brings is all-encompassing. Look at verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. The other Gospels record that this happened on the Sabbath, as I mentioned earlier. And so that means like a good Jewish community, they wait until the Sabbath is over, until the sun sets, the Sabbath is done, they can then begin their travel, they can begin going, and apparently they can begin being healed at that moment when the Sabbath is over. And so at this point, the word has gotten out that Jesus the healer has come into Capernaum, that he's doing uh, miracles, and that he's open for business. All right, sun has set. He's open for business. Bring all your sick people. So they start wheeling them in one but one after another, and he is healing all of these people. But if you notice about this scene, there are two groups that Matthew calls out that are receiving healing. The first group is what? The people that have spiritual sickness. They're, they're oppressed by demons. And it says there that Jesus casts out the spirit with a word. Now, that's a big deal. Thus far, uh, all that we've seen in the three miracles in, in, the three miracles in total, Jesus' mother and, uh, Peter's mother-in-law and the, the two other miracles in the previous passages, is they're dealing with some sort of physical illness. But it's a big deal to be able to command the spiritual world as well. And here it shows Jesus healing these people with a word. Meaning, it wasn't hard for him. That he's casting out demons with a word. And we're going to see more about this in the coming weeks. About him dealing with the spiritual realm as well and being able to command it. But the point is that he is able to command demons with a word. Now this is sometimes lost on our culture. Who finds it very difficult, the, even the concept of demonic possession or demonic oppression. Or even just demonic influence in the world. I would even go so far as to say, in particular with younger crowd, but I think it goes across all generations, that most Christians in the church in America are skeptical about the real role and influence demonic, uh, the demonic realm plays on our world today. I think most uh, people, most Christians are now under the assumption that the Bible chalks up a lot of things to demonic possession that we now have explainable uh, causes for today. We, we can explain that today. That's what that really was. They thought it was demons, but we, we know now today that that is something else. And I, I think the opposite is actually true. I think there are many things that we find perfectly explainable in the realm of illnesses today. And we completely ignore the spiritual component whatsoever. So we, we look at a country like Africa and we say, well, they have one hammer and it's demonic possession. And they're just looking for the nail to strike it. So you get a cough and they're trying to cast out a demon. But it's equally problematic the other way, where we have the hammer of medicine. 
and we go around looking at everything as medicinal and nothing as spiritual. It's just the opposite error. In reality, the Bible comes to the middle, and it's both. And we'll talk more about that in another sermon. But this is a tremendous act by Jesus. He's, he's, a, he's casting out demons with the word. He's able to command the spiritual world. This kingdom of heaven that's being brought into the world is not just a physical thing. It's also a spiritual thing. But then we also see the second group, those with physical illnesses, who are called out as being healed as well. So Matthew says he healed all who were sick. Now this is an important statement. Because there, there weren't any impediments to his healing. Nobody got there and he said, well, he healed all of them except for that one guy who had that one thing. That was the limit. He couldn't do that. No, all of them were healed. Everyone who came to be healed walked away healed. Literally everyone who came walked away healed. Now, I know that as we go through this passage, you may be thinking to yourself, yeah, these things seem obvious. If I were to read these things, these things would pop off the page to me too. It, it seems like you're belaboring the point of the meaning of the passage, but it's important to stop and think and take note of what we're actually looking at here when Jesus is performing these miracles. It's also important to stop and ask ourselves the question, why has Matthew chosen to include these miracles in this place, and why has he made the statements that he makes? Well, it's not until verse 17 that he actually tells us why he's included these stories of healing. And it's our third observation. The healing Jesus brings gives us a glimpse into the kingdom of heaven. The healing Jesus brings gives us a glimpse into the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, Matthew tells us the reason for his healing ministry was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes there Isaiah 53, verse 4. Now, here is how you have always heard Isaiah 53, 4. I'm going to read it to you. It should appear on the screen behind me. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You can leave that verse up on the screen for right now. So we read there, griefs and sorrows. He bore, he'd borne our griefs and our sorrows. But Matthew translates it, illnesses and diseases. But Isaiah 53, anytime that it's read and preached on, anytime you hear it, from the pulpit or taught in a Sunday school class or a small group. It's always tied almost exclusively to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Yes? That's how you read Isaiah 53. In fact, let's read the rest of Isaiah 53, 4, and 5. We esteemed him stricken, uh, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. What does that sound like? Well, that sounds like the crucifixion. That sounds like Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It seems like he's clearly talking about the crucifixion, the price that Christ paid for our sins on the cross. He bore our griefs and our sorrows on the cross. But Matthew says at least the first part of this passage applies to Jesus' healing ministry. 
what gives? For Matthew, there's not much of a difference between the healing that Jesus gives people during his life and the healing that he brings to us on the cross by forgiveness of sins. One leads naturally to the other. One leads naturally to the other. Now, if you go back in your minds to Genesis chapter 3, think back with me just for a moment to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. You remember that we visited this passage several times in the last few weeks, but think back with me. Adam and Eve sin, and God gives to them punishments. And we pick up on the punishments in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3. And there we see that as he's doling out the punishments to, the, to Adam and Eve, to the, the, the man, or to the, sorry, to the woman, he first tells her that he's going to multiply her pain in childbearing. That she, in pain, she's going to deliver children. Not that she probably didn't have some sort of discomfort beforehand, but he's going to multiply the pain in childbearing now. It's going to make it so that it's, there's a question as to whether it's worth it or not. Okay? Like, that kind of pain. So I've been told. I don't really think it's probably that bad. But, but, we'll, uh, <laughs> uh, they tell me it is. I believe them, I guess. Uh, so, but the, there's going to be pain. But then the other, the second part of the punishment that he gives to Eve is that she, she's going to be at war with her husband. Her desire is going to be to dominate her husband. His desire is going to be to dominate uh, her. And so in the marriage relationship, there's going to be strife. Amen? Amen. We know what that feels like. All the husbands are like, I'm not, don't you? (laughs) I'm not going there. (laughs) My lips are sealed. (laughs) So then he goes to the husband. And he, he says to the husband, he curses the ground as a result of the man, and, and so then for the man, and in fact for all humanity, the, the ground is going to be uh, is, is punished. And what, and what he also implies by that is that there's going to be pain and suffering for him. It, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to do this. You're going to actually return to the dust. You're going to die one day. You're gonna, you're, it, and all the back aches and all the, it's just going to be really, really hard. The second part of that suffering is that the ground is not going to produce for you what it had in the past. It's going to be with much labor that you actually grow things and that things are, are produced for you. So there is, uh, the earth feels the sin, the man feels the sin, the woman feels the sin, the relationship between them feels the sin. So what that means is that the result of sin was strife between each other. Pain of all types. Difficulty in work. Lumped into that would be illnesses of all kinds. In particular, is noted that which brings death. He says that in verse 19 in Genesis chapter 3. He tells him that out of the ground you came and you're going to go back into it. So the picture that's created in the first three chapters of Genesis is not only a loss of innocence, but that after sin, humanity as well as creation is now subjected to a curse. Things are not the way they used to be, in other words. But when we get to the New Testament, Paul expounds on this in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 20. You can read that with me on the screen behind me. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole earth has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul essentially summarizes what the effects of the fall have been in our lives and in this world. And he, he puts it under the, the whole umbrella of suffering. It's all suffering. Everything from the created order, the human beings, the rocks, the animals, the plants, literally everything is feeling the effects of the fall. The futility that we feel, the death that is all around us and is coursing through our veins and is in that casket with that young kid that that mother feels in the pew is all an effect of the fall. Therefore, what is illness? What is sickness? What is demon possession? What is death? What are these poor souls coming to Jesus for healing? What is the leper? What's the centurion's servant? What's Peter's mother-in-law? What are these townspeople that are coming to Jesus for healing? What are they but people who are suffering under the curse of the fall that are begging for some relief from its effects? So when we think about Jesus' ministry, what is it? Jesus' whole time on earth, his entire ministry, his healing, his his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, it's a window into the kingdom of heaven. That's what it is. It's a window into the kingdom of heaven. It's a glimpse of what to expect when the curse of the fall is lifted. What should we expect? We should expect to be restored completely. We should should expect restoration to be all-encompassing. That there's no one that can't be healed. See, Jesus' miracles in those first two sections are giving us a glimpse into what kind of kingdom we should expect. What does that kingdom of heaven look like? It looks like this. It looks like a person who's lying with a fever that no one can heal and that the fever won't break. But whom Jesus touches and she gets up to serve. What does the kingdom of heaven look like? It looks like a whole bunch of people who have a bunch of illnesses who all walk away healed. See, it's Jesus pushing back directly against the fall. He's pushing back directly against the fall. See, it's as if we're walking through life, looking through a veil. And everything beyond the veil is blurry, is dark. We can see shapes and outlines, but we can't exactly make out the details. And every once in a while, in fact, after a period of time, we start to feel like it's normal. 
Yeah, this is what the world looks like beyond the veil. This is what the world is supposed to look like. It becomes the new normal. Well, when the, yeah, people are in caskets, but eh, that's the normal course of events. That's how things normally happen. Yeah, the 16-year-old died, but, well, it's not completely normal. It's a little bit outside the bounds, but it's, it happens from time to time. Everything from the most tragic to the seemingly most benign, the achy back that you feel when you get up out of bed, That's normal. That's what it's like to get old. That's what happens. Because we're looking through the veil, and we've gotten so used to looking through the veil, that everything about it looks normal to us now. But what is Jesus doing? He's coming in, and he's pulling the veil up. He's lifting it up. When he heals this person and that person, he's lifting the veil up and showing us life on the other side of the veil in HD. As the kingdom of God comes in and lifts the veil from every eye. What is going to be revealed? But perfection. The world the way it's intended to be. Without blurriness. The world in high def. He's not only pushing back against the fall. But he's replacing it with something grander. He's replacing what's there with something bigger and better, with the kingdom of God. And so in these healings, he's giving us a clue as to what the kingdom of heaven will be like. And we're told in Scripture several times the purposes of Jesus' healing ministry. We're we're told the purposes. And I'm going to go through these passages in direct succession. I'm just going to go right through them. But we're told first... That it is a sign of his nature. That it tells us who is at the helm of the kingdom of heaven. Who this Jesus is that's in front of us. John 2, 11. They should appear on the screen behind me. John 2, 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. John 5, 36 tells us, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Then Jesus, when he raises Lazarus in John chapter 11, verse 25, and then we connect the dots in 42, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And we see in verse 42, he says, I knew that he's praying to God. He says, I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. His healings are a testimony to who he is. What kind of king we have at the center of this kingdom. But his his ministry is also a sign, a sign to us of the eradication of the effects of sin. It's a sign that, that one day complete freedom from sin is to be had. And we get a glimpse of this in the here and now. We feel this in the here and now, but we will experience it fully one day. Like Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's an effect of His work. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's an effect of his ministry, of his work. John 8.36 So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's a, an effect of his ministry, of his work. Galatians 5.1 For freedom Christ has set us free. That's an effect of his work. And we've only begun to taste the victory over sin that we will one day taste. You get that? He's coming to give us a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven, to pull back the veil, to give us a taste of what freedom from sin looks like and feels like when we're able to obey God. His ministry, though, is a sign of a future consummated kingdom. There will be one day when the kingdom of God is unfurled in front of us. And here's what that day will look like. John describes it for us in Revelation 21, 1-7. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. See, the point that Matthew is making is that all of this, all of it, Jesus' healings that he does of people's illnesses, the casting out of demons, the dying on the cross, and, and rising again from the dead for our sins, they're all part of the same thing. Jesus came to deal with sin in every way. From top to bottom. From first to last. From beginning to end. So in his healing ministry, he's giving a glimpse into the kingdom of heaven. Do you see what God's kingdom is? He says to them. Your illnesses have no place in God's kingdom. Raising people from the dead. Do you see what God's kingdom, God's kingdom is like? Death has no place in God's kingdom. And on the cross, do you see what it takes to get there? Sin has no place in God's kingdom. But it comes with a promise of hope 
and future. He says, he will wipe away every tear from our eye. Brothers and sisters, if he has taken our illnesses and healed them, showing us that he has the power to overcome sickness, if he has tasted death and rose again from the dead, showing that he has the power to overcome death, what hope do we have that he means what he says when he says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes? Every hope. Every hope. All of the tears are just one more evidence that the world that we live in is subjected to futility, but it's subjected in hope that one day at His return, we will see with our own eyes that not one tear actually hit the ground, but every single tear was caught in the palm of the Savior. What does that mean for us? That means that there is the first kind of relief that we need to seek and help others seek, which is a restored relationship with God. That is the first kind of healing that we should be helping others seek. A right relationship with God. That's the first kind of healing that we should seek ourselves is a restored relationship with God. This is the truth of the Gospel that we believe. That on Him was the chastisement of us all. That by His stripes we are healed. That on the cross God poured out the wrath that He had for us on the shoulders of Christ and He offers us eternal life by grace through faith in the resurrected Son of God. That in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Him. That He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might be the righteousness of God. That's the first kind of healing we should seek. But then the second, it's also the first kind of healing we should seek to give to others. In evangelism, do you see what you're doing? Do you see what you're doing in evangelism? Do people need all their, answer, all their questions answered? We need to try to answer their questions. But is that the purpose of evangelism, to answer all their questions? No. Is the purpose of evangelism that, here, let me show you how much of the Bible that I know? No. Is the purpose of evangelism, let me astound you with my wit and wisdom? No. Is the purpose of evangelism, let me show you how much philosophical sense this makes. No. You are a living, breathing, walking member of the kingdom of heaven. You have been healed by the healer. The purpose of evangelism is to lift up their veil so that they may look at you who has been healed. That through you, they might see life in high definition. Then it brings up the question, if I'm giving others a glimpse into my life, what kind of life am I living? Am I living life as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? 
When they see me grieve, do they see me grieve as one who has no hope? Do they see me grieve as one who grieves just like the people I see through the veil? When I have disagreements with brothers or sisters, when I have disagreements with people, do they see me respond to them in the same way that people through the veil respond? Do they see me respond differently? When I open up my home to people, do they see me open up my home with begrudging attitude, in selfishness, just like the people through the veil do, or is it a whole new way of being? Brothers and sisters, we're called to live life as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The purpose is so that we can point them to the one who healed us. No, I can't heal you. But I can show you the one who can. That's what evangelism is. That's all we're trying to do for people. Or as Jesus says, that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, how woefully short we come in living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but by your grace every day, moving closer and closer to that reality. Lord, we pray for your Spirit's work in our hearts to conform us into the image of Christ. That when people see us, they do see life in high definition. They do see people who have been radically changed by your healing ministry. By the works that you have done in our hearts. May we live our lives to glorify you, to bring others into that worship as well. In Jesus' name, amen.